Howdy, and welcome to your dog's best life. This is Leanne, all by herself, so bear with me. Um, before we get started today, I kind of have a story to tell. It's going to segue very badly into what we're going to talk about, but honestly, it's just I need to vent. So I'm a I'm a farmer, but I'm not like a real farmer, and I'm not a hobby farmer. Hobby farmers to me are like people who live on these beautiful green. It's always green, and the animals all look happy, and, and the sheep wear bows, and the sheep, chickens have names, and it's it's fun and fluffy, and that, that's not how I farm. I'm also not a real farmer in that I actually don't make any money and don't have enough livestock to really count. I have a little over two dozen sheep, maybe, right around there. I have a dozen chickens and poultry, assorted poultry. That's it. So... What it seems to me is that the number of livestock I have right now is the perfect number for them to conspire endlessly to try to make my life as miserable as possible. So yesterday I went down to herd with the dogs and I had like an hour window before a client would come up for herding and took Tag down and Cody and my ram is loose. Little bastard. So, and he's an ass. And the dogs, he's a hes a shithead to the dogs. He has big, whopping monster horns. He knows how to use them. He knows how to use the fences. So getting him put away is, is an unholy nightmare. And it's not like I could just throw him back in the hole that he built in the fence because I couldn't find how he got out of the fence. Because I still have no idea how he got out of the fence. And so it seems like my sheep spend every waking minute trying to get out of the fencing or break the fencing or destroy the fencing. My ducks spend every waking minute trying to commit various types of duck suicide. Um, my chickens are, are on the same boat. They are actually incredible suicidally uh, motivated creatures. My geese are actually the closest to hobby creatures I have. They're charming. They're fun. They're enjoyable. They're not suicidal. They're very hardy. And so you guys want to tell you that. Uh, and well, and the other thing is, so I have no skills. So usually if you're a real farmer, you have real farmers in the family. And if things break in the world of a real farmer, like a tractor, they don't, it's no, it doesn't become a lawn ornament and they don't look for the closest tractor dealer. They actually fix the bloody thing. Whereas mine fencing looks like it was built by someone with zero skills. Like, I don't even have zero skills. I have fewer than zero skills. I actually suck skills from the universe. I'm a net loss of skill. So I actually bought a box of two penny nails, those big, long, I think they're like two inches long, standard nails that you'd use for two-by-fours. And I had to stop using them because I think that they needed to be recalled because every time I hit them with a hammer, they bent into like a boomerang shape. I don't think that's how nails go. I had to use screws instead. Uh, that's how uniquely unskilled I am. In fact, my chicken coop looks like it was either built by uh, a toddler who was allowed to play with stock, top, stock panels because that's safe <laughs> or or, I don't know, it was thrown together in a hurricane, and it's what washed ashore. It's bad. And so, I, it's just, and so my sheep are, so what happened? I finally get this stupid ram put away, and I'm pretty certain I know how he got out. I honestly think what happened is somehow he got his head below a piece of fencing and then just slithered out, and it's not repeatable because he can't, he can't do it again. But that does bring us somewhat poorly to our actual topic today, which is habit and the creation thereof.
So, see how I smoothly made something completely unrelated, just a psychotic rant? Sound like it was meaningful? I feel so skilled. So anyway, I'm going to rest my laurels for a minute. Let's have a moment of silence for my genius. Okay, it was a very short moment. So anyway, um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so anyway, um, dogs have habits too. And a lot of times when we're training dogs and when trainers talk, talk, uh, speak amongst themselves, that seems to kind of fall by the wayside for a lot of training methodolo methodologies and kind of thought processes. There's this belief system that if we, if a dog has a behavior and we want to change that behavior, we simply uh, create an alternate behavior and pay the dog enough to, to prefer the alternate behavior in the face of the stimuli. And for all that fancy language, all that means is, is we say, well, we don't want you smoking cigarettes, dog, because that's bad for your lungs, and it's expensive, and you don't have a job. We would prefer that instead of doing that, you chew gum. But not the stuff with no sugar because it's toxic to dogs. So make sure you get sugar, not, you have to get sugary uh, gum for your dogs uh, because xylitol is very toxic to dogs. So anyway, we were telling our dogs that we prefer them to do pretty much anything but cigarette smoking. And so we, we pay well. We were like, okay, if you don't light a cigarette, we are going to give you treats. And the dog says, oh, score, treats. The problem is, is that that cigarette smoking was actually a habit. And that habit was put together by certain situations. So the, the dog would find itself smoking after dinner, and it would find itself smoking in bars when it was hanging out with the other dogs, talking about, you know, how hard the sheep are to move. And so when it's sitting around at the bar, I probably should have said pub. That has a better image, right? We have our sheep dogs are in a pub. It's Irish. There's some great music going on in the background. It's kind of dark and gloomy, and there's... Suzzy beer. I don't drink beer. <laughs> Suzzy's the best I can go. I don't even know if it's cold in Ireland. So anyway, it's a great place. The dogs are all hanging out. And our dog is there. And he's got his gum. And he's chatting away. And he doesn't even think about it. And there's a pack of cigarettes right in front of him. Before he knows it, he's pulling that cigarette out. And he's lighting it up. And you're thinking, well, what a bad damn dog. Right? We just spent years. We spent weeks working on this stupid dog to get this behavior to go away. And the first minute our, our back is turned, he's in there smoking with his friends at the bar. What kind of dog is this? So then it's, it's like, well, he's either bad, bad dog, or I'm a shitty trainer. What did I do wrong? What I did wrong is I forgot that habit is really, really powerful. Okay, obviously I'm joking about my dog smoking. Um, I don't have any cigarettes from the mooch because I don't smoke. Um, and I don't think they can light a cigarette lighter anyway. Honestly, most adults can't. But, it, but the point remains, because cigarettes are an incredibly powerful example that human beings recognize. Even if you yourself have never smoked, you probably know someone who has smoked. And you will see those people, they don't like the habit. They don't want to do the habit. They understand the ramifications of the habit, and they've done everything in their power to move away from the habit, and they can. They'll do it for years. I mean, if you know family members, you know that they'll go a year, two years, five years without a, sm without a cigarette, and then all of a sudden, you, you go to visit them or whatever, and you're, why do I smell smoke? Well, they start smoking again. It's because the brain is really, really good at creating habits. Habits are incredible tool that our brain loves to default to because it's cheap. Um, the running of the brain is very, very expensive. Uh, brains are, 
the most expensive part of our of the sucks the most fuel of our entire body. And so anything that our body can do to ensure that the brain is running as easily as possible without using a lot of its its energy, the better it is for us as a species. And we have to assume that any species that is similar enough to us that we can live with them rationally and kind of interact with them on, on a, at a training level are also going to be subject to habit formation. And we, we know this. Um, you know, the best, describe, the best example we have with dogs is you have the happy golden retriever. And the happy golden retriever has been taught not to jump on people. You've done everything. And the, ha the happy golden retriever has gone weeks and months without jumping on anybody. And then these kids are there, and they open their arms wide, and they call the dog, and the dog comes roaring over and jumps on them. And you're like, oh, man, bad dog. Well, it's that powerful thing called habit. It's, it's a groove worn in your dog's brain, and it's very easy to get back into that groove, as it were, and bang, your behavior starts again. So let's talk a little bit about habits as, as we understand them uh, in people, and then we'll extrapolate a little bit of that to dogs. So in 2012, uh, a book was written called The Power of Habit by a gentleman named Charles Duhigg, and it was a New York Times bestseller. If you're at all geeky about the human brain, why we do the things we do, it's a fantastic book. It was a great read. Um, I remember blasting through it. it. I just loved that book. And it has a lot of really powerful illustrations, both on the, the mental aspect of why our brain creates habit and how, why habits are so powerful and why habits are so so incredibly difficult to break, as well as some great ideas on how to break those habits. And I think the new year is kind of a nice time because we are all, uh, some people, not all we all, but most people kind of look at the new years, especially this year, as a new beginning, as, as oh, this is the year I will do X, Y, Z. This is the year I will eat better. I will run longer. I will... Uh, clean the house more effectively, wh whatever whatever you're trying to do. And, and maybe you've done that promise every year of your life for <laughs> 40 years. Um, because your habits to do the opposite are incredibly powerful and strong. So let's talk about the habits that our dogs face and how we can try to address those habits and understand that they're kind of a little bit outside, um, I'm going to get yelled at by people, about outside the Skinner mold, in that it's not really just about reinforcing the other behavior enough that that first behavior goes away. Because we know now that the brain will revert back to an old behavior if the antecedent picture is correct, remember the dog in the bar, and you're just not paying attention, honestly. Uh, fighting a habit takes mental, mental bandwidth. Uh, I have never smoked, but, you know, anytime I start a new, try to start a new habit, you know, I start to, I try to run more, I'm biking longer, I'm uh, practicing, you know, herding three times a week instead of twice a week or wh whatever. That takes mental bandwidth. I have to move my brain into the thought of we must do this thing instead of reverting back to normal behaviors that, that are not that. So that wasn't English, but just bear with me. So anyway, 
what all that means is that the biggest part of changing a habit, and this is research done, I, I picked this up in the book, and I haven't read the book since it came out, so I may have, I may screw some of this stuff up. Bear with me, and if, if you've read it recently, you can correct me, is that the antecedent picture is so, so huge. That's the bar. And the idea that we can change a habit while we are in the same antecedent picture that we've always done our habit in is incredibly likely to fail. So the, the argument made in the book was that the best time to try to change a habit is on vacation. Uh, and, if, and you might know that. You know, uh, vacations are where you start, uh, you, maybe you eat better or worse, depending on how you eat at home. Um, maybe you exercise more. Maybe, you know, who knows? But if you are on vacation, if something has disrupted your life, that is the time to change that habit because the picture has changed and your brain is no longer on auto autopilot as it were. So let's talk about some habits that our dogs have and let's talk a little bit about how we might be able to change that antecedent picture because just because we know this idea does not mean it's it's an easy thing to do because we can't always put it, take our dogs on vacation. And even taking our dog on vacation may not change the picture enough. So let's start with a behavior that a lot of us have seen with our own dogs, that a lot of people struggle with. Um, and oftentimes it ends up being, unless you're just using a really suppressive training method where you just uh, nail the dog for making the bad choice, um, dog to dog reactivity on a leash where the dog sees another dog in a leash and erupts like an idiot, that behavior can become very habit forming for these dogs. So what I mean by that is, as a rule of thumb, if I see a dog lunging and barking at the end of the leash, I'm going to think that there are three different reasons for that dog to do that behavior that caused the initial behavior in the first place. They all come down to frustration. The first would be if the dog is afraid. Um, usually you're going to see this in the small dogs, the little guys, because, well, they've done the math, and that Rottweiler is huge, and so they want to make a big scene and go, I'm fierce, rah, 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 stay away from me. So when you see the Chihuahua, Chihuahua making this huge scene on the string, it's because he's scared to death, he has nowhere to go, and he is going to tell everybody that he's a big, bad, little, evil Chihuahua, and you better not mess with him, or he'll take your ankles off. That's the first dog. The second dog is also very common nowadays because people kind of have a misunderstanding of what socialization is. And those are the dogs who are what we call the frustrated greeters. That's the happy dog who loves to see other dogs, loves to see other people, and suddenly the rules have changed and they can't go say hi to every dog and they don't understand why. And so they become frustrated and upset and they make a big scene and they bounce and they bark and they lunge and they cry and they scream. The last group, and this is a much smaller group, so we will not spend as much time on it, would be the reactive dogs who are generally herding dogs, um, who are just reactive to any sights and sounds and changes in their environment, and they simply react. Um, they are trying to, they're trying to create control in a chaotic environment, and they cannot con create control, and so they, that builds up frustration, and they essentially are yelling at the other dog to stop being in their space or existing in any way, shape, or form. So, let's say that we, we have these, these dogs, and they, they have this behavior, this lunging, barking, maniac behavior on a leash when they see another dog. And let's say that we've done all the work correctly to fix whatever the underlying issue is. Um, you know, if the dog is, is fearful, we've counter-conditioned, we've done BAT, behavior adjustment training, we've done whatever we've, that methodology we've done, we now know that the dog feels better 
about other dogs. We now know that that dog is no longer afraid, or we can assume that that dog is no longer afraid of other dogs. Or in the case of the frustrated greeter, we made it incredibly plain to that dog that no matter how much of an ass you act like, you are never going to be permitted to go walking up to a strange dog again. It's just not going to happen. So forget it. Just hang up your hat and let's just walk along peacefully. And later on tonight, you can play with your buddies in the dog park where you belong, not on leash. And so we've explained it to the dog. And with uh, the reactive border collie dogs, we've given them an outlet for that reactivity. We bought a flock of sheep because that's a sane idea. And uh, our dog is now hurting and they have the, that need fulfilled. And so they no longer need to control every aspect of their environment because they can control some aspects of their environment. So our dog now, quote unquote, knows they don't need to make this scene, okay? But they still do. They still do. You're, you've done everything right. You've listened to your dog trainer. You've, you've studied uh, the bat 2.0 and bat 1, and you've read them, and you could recite them verbatim, and you've done everything, and you've done it twice. And by God, what the hell is wrong with your dog? Why won't your dog understand that they need to stop this behavior? They're no longer scared. They shouldn't be. And honestly, your dog probably is no longer scared. If you've done everything right, if you've taken the time to counter-condition your dog and you've really paid attention and the dog has had multiple encounters with other dogs in a totally benign situation and nothing ill came of it, you're probably right. Your dog is no longer frightened. Or a better example, because it's, it's not as big a deal if you fuck it up, your happy goober golden retriever um, now realizes there's no way in hell he's going to see the other dog. He hasn't, he hasn't walked up to another dog in four years. I mean, the, the odds are zero. But he still acts like a dipshit. And he acts like a dipshit more in your neighborhood than anywhere else. When you're walking him on the street every morning, every single dog that he knows and he's seen 10,000 times, he just loses his shit on. You take him in a car ride, you take him across town, and he's pretty much cool. There's your power of habit. The dog's behavior at this point is habitual. The barking, lunging, crazy behavior, if you've done all the stuff to start with correctly, is a residual behavior that remains after the fact. Now, not every dog does this. I mean, it's not always a habit, but for some dogs, it is a habit, which is why this behavior seems so difficult to beat if you're not using a punishment paradigm. If you use a punishment paradigm where you're like, I don't give a shit why you're acting like this, you just don't get to act like this, and I will do everything in my power to make acting like this much more unpleasant than whatever you think is going to happen. Then the dog's just going to shut down and just hate life, but they're going to shut up. Um, Obviously, that's not the direction I am comfortable going. Um, I hope most of my listeners aren't really comfortable in that direction either. Um, But that is why you will see results faster with that style of dog. Now, I mean, we can talk about, well, is the dog now crazy? Is the dog now going to bite the owner? Is there going to be some sort of repercussion? Um, because that is the, the thought process of the force-free kind of and positive-only training groups. And I wish as a long-term trainer that I, I, I used to, so a small, I'll, I'll make a little digression here. I worked at an Arab farm 
um, in Kentucky for about a year. And they were horrific to the horses. I mean, these people were just asshats. I mean, they were terrible human beings. Um, I mean, I fantasized about one of the trainers about tying his ass up and just wailing the shit out of him because that's how he treated the horses. Um, he would just beat them until they just surrendered. He was a piece of garbage. Um, the best thing could have happened to him was one of these days for him to be poaching a deer and get shot by one of the neighbors. I mean, he was a bad, bad dude. He was a piece of garbage. So anyway, so I worked at this barn and there was a stallion that they had gelded. And I love this stallion. Just the coolest gelding. And, but as a stallion, he was a bastard. And as a gelding, he was a little bit of a shithead too. And they decided they wanted to make him into a halter stallion. Or gelding, sorry. And so this little Napoleon douchebag asshole guy goes out into the ring and just starts wailing on this gelding in his quote-unquote training method. And this gelding just starts kicking the shit out of him. And I'm rooting for this horse. I want this guy. I'm like, I'm not even calling 911. I'm just going to pretend I never saw anything. I, this guy really deserved it. But you know what? It never ended up that way. The horse capitulated. He couldn't win. Learned helplessness. It just... I loved, I'd love to believe there's a world where anytime we suppress a behavior, there's an outlet somewhere and it comes out bad. And But if that were really true, everybody's dog back in the old days when we all used some level of force in our training, all of those dogs would event, eventually have bitten us. And we know that's not true. So you can make yourself feel better by, by saying, oh, well, there's all these um, ramifications that are going on. And yeah, they're internal. The dog's in misery. That horse had a shit attitude towards the guy and man anytime that guy came near that stall uh that horse was snaking his head out to try to nail him um but in the end the guy got what he wanted the horse did not um and that's how it often happens when we use uh force with animals unfortunately um i like to believe and, and i think a lot of positive reinforcement trainers kind of fantasize about the idea that we are suppressing a behavior and now you know, you're just putting your thumb on it, and it's going to blow up on these days, and, you know, as my dad used to say, Katie by the door, whatever the hell that means. Uh, but that's not really what happens. But the dog is miserable. And so the, the reason, I don't, I don't avoid using force in the situation that we're describing with a, with a barking, lunging, barking, crazy, happy dog. I don't avoid using force because I believe that there's a, a secret, situation, I'm going, to situ I'm going to create a situation where the dog is going to come back at me someday in frustration. Or I, I do it because it's, it's not right. It's not a right place to start, especially if the dog is afraid. I, I think the worst crime that we can commit as human beings is to take a fearful animal and tell them, I don't give a shit about your fear. You need to knock this shit off. Now, Having said that, I mean, if the fearful behavior, if I'm working with a horse and the fearful behavior is they're going to attack me and kill me, well, then we need to have a conversation about the, their, their display of the fear. I've got to do something uh, for my safety and the safety of the animal. But we're talking about dogs here. We're talking about lunging and barking. It's inconvenient. It's embarrassing as hell. Um, it can be dangerous if the dog slips the lead or if the dog is huge and the owner is tiny. But come on. 90% of these are freaking little dogs, 40-pound pit bulls, barking border collies, just acting like dipshits. And the idea that we're just going to shut down this behavior and call it a day and walk away and the dog's behavior is suppressed, 
it's really quite disturbing. So anyway, so let's go back. Um, enough of that little soapbox. So you've done everything right, and your dog now pretty much knows. I mean, I'm putting in air quotes because, of course, we can't know the knowledge, we can't know the thoughts of another animal any more than I can know the thoughts of my spouse half the time. But we, we kind of know. So I'll give you an example. So Cody, my my one of my border colleagues, she came to me at a year, and she had a lot of behavioral issues, and I think we brought them up before. And she's a fantastic little dog. And the one residual behavior that we really still kind of struggle with is dog uh, reactivity on a leash. And she she was really, really bad when I got her, and she's gotten substantially better over the years. And because I, I never really worked on it to a large extent, because it's very difficult uh, to work on something like that when you live on a mountaintop. And I certainly couldn't use my own client dogs. That would not have been appropriate. So uh, what's happened, though, is over the years, she's just been introduced to enough strange dogs that haven't murdered her that she's just kind of decided that I'm not... I'm not going to let anything happen to her. I mean, it's just, it hasn't happened. I mean, she, I've owned her for, for, I think, almost six years at this point. Nothing bad has happened in six years. And the bad things that happened to her happened way when she was a little puppy. So even though those, those memories are probably very strong in her mind, I, I'm going to go on a limb and say that when she's now encountering a strange dog on a leash, if she chooses to erupt, it is a choice in the same way that lighting that cigarette's a choice. So, I mean, I don't know how much autonomy I can give that choice, but it's not based, it's not an adrenaline rush, it's not based on fear. It is, I see her dog and this is how I behave. So, the question is, is if this is where we're at, if I've got a dog like Cody, who I've, I did spend probably a good six months really doing focused bat work with her in a local park, I've done a ton of counter conditioning. Like I said, I've kept her away. She's not had any zero altercations with any other dogs on leash in the last five, maybe six years, however long I've owned her. There is zero reason for this dog at this point to be acting in this manner because she's afraid. And part of me knows this because she does not act like this at all if there are sheep present. And I can't assume, I, I have to assume, that if you are frightened of spiders, it doesn't matter if you're playing chess, and you really like chess, and so you don't mind the tarantula crawling across the chessboard. I'm going to say that if you're frightened of, of spiders, and there's a tarantula crawling across the chessboard, you're probably going to freak the fuck out, and chuck the chessboard, and run for your life. You're not going to be so distracted by, oh my god, this is the, my favorite song on the radio. I don't care that there's a spider in the car. I don't think that's true. I think fear is kind of fear is fear is fear. So, yes, you can distract it with fun and games, but I think just the presence of something else exciting should not really suppress the fear to the point where you are a completely different animal. So we know that Cody can tolerate dogs really close to her with sheep in the area. So that is where I started kind of getting the idea that really this is not a fear behavior. And so the question comes back, well, how do we fix what we now see? And the answer, unfortunately, is incredibly complex because the picture, we don't know what part of the picture they see as being the issue. Probably the leash. <laughs> that would mean we'd have to take our dogs off leash and let a 
than be bum-rushed by strange dogs to establish whether or not the leash is part of the problem. And by doing that, we will create a whole new set of problems. So I certainly would never uh, recommend that. We can decide that it's location-based or context-based. So again, a lot of times people will say, well, I've done that and I've done counter-conditioning and the dog is fine if I take it to this place, if I take it to the park, but in my neighborhood, he's a dipshit. Well, okay, so that's telling me that the habit, thankfully, oh, yay, is tied to your neighborhood. And so at that point, probably using an interrupter word, hey, when the dog looks at you, rewarding, might be enough. Where we simply interrupt their behavior, reward the alternate behavior, which is the dog stopping and looking at you. Generally, if I use an interrupter word, the interrupter word is, hey, and the dog says, what? And turns to look. And then I give a reward, good dog, thank you very much for turning and looking, remember I exist. And generally, that's probably going to be enough to break that movement. And we can break up that habit piece by piece. That will take time too, but it's not the long, drawn-out march of counter-conditioning and desensitization and that and all of that stuff. This is just coming back, back afterwards and kind of cleaning that up. Now, what happens if you've done all this and the habit has gone away and everything is perfect and you decide to go on a camping trip with some friends and they have kind of a shitty little dog that you really don't like and he kind of bum rushes other dogs but your dog's doing great so what the hell so you take your dogs on a hike with this dog and this dog uh, gets in close to your dog and attacks it guess what your dog is going to fall right back into that habit because it's there. That groove never goes away. That's the power of habit. And that though once we've achieved those behavioral corridors in our brain, they're always accessible. And we will always fall back on them in times of stress. So the more stressed and upset your dog is, the more likely they are to reverse to those habitual, revert to those habitual behaviors. So the reason we talk about this um, is because sometimes we act like dogs can't fuck up. <laughs> like, like if they know better, they can't forget, or they can't go get confused, or they can't. We can do all of those things. So I. I'm really kind of perplexed by the idea that dogs can't. Um, I can be asked by my husband to do something and immediately forget it. And he'll ask about it when he comes home the following weekend, and I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I slept. I forgot. That's, it's not an overt act of aggression on my part. It's not an overt act of omission on my part. It is simply, it just never registered in my brain. Um, we, same thing with trying to create new habits. If we are trying to, um, do something every day, we get busy and we forget. And we get to the end of the day and we're like, ah, oh, damn, I was going to put in a three mile run and I just ran out of time and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, there's nothing wrong with kind of giving that sort of grace to our dogs as well and understanding that they too can have bad days, they can forget, they, um, they're, they're an animal, just like we are. And the idea that once they're trained, air quotes, they're somehow immovably perfect and automatons is, is ludicrous. 
They're a thinking, breathing, complicated animal. And in times of heightened excitement and arousal, they can forget just as readily as we can. It's not disobedience. It's not being a bad dog. It's just being a dog, just being a living animal who's imperfect. Um, I went herding with Tag on Friday. Tag is doing incredibly well. Uh, my husband calls every time I come back from, from herding with my, my I take uh, herding instruction from another a woman here in southern Arizona. And he always asks me how Tag is, and I'm like gushing. I'm like, Tag's the best dog ever, and she's amazing, and oh my God, she's just the best dog. And he's like, oh my God, I have to listen to this again. So Tag was, I don't know what got into Tag's head. She couldn't remember a damn thing on Friday. She, her brain fell out. She came out of the truck and I left her brain in the truck. She couldn't remember any of the things that she knew. Nothing. She couldn't remember stay. It totally perplexed her. It was so bad that at one point we had to stop what we were doing, and I literally tied her to a tree, lied her down, and then kind of did this ridiculous jig and dance with the I my my stock flag, and I'm waving it around, and I'm spooking the sheep because I'm like, you know what stay means. And, and when we're going into those big distances, because she's starting to do some pretty decent-sized outruns, if she blows a stay, I've got a haul ass to try and intercept her. And now everything's turned into a shit show. So rather than wait for things to get hideous, and don't get me wrong, they continued to, <laughs> to remain hideous throughout the entire hour plus that we were there. Um, they just chose. She just chose different avenues for hideousness. I don't know what crawled up her butt that day, but she was a little monster. Um, it ended well. That's all that matters. But uh, it, it, but it's not, you know, as a trainer, I'm looking at this, and this is the dog that I've, you know, put all these plans on, and we're going to we're gonna get these titles, and at some point, we're going to look for a stud dog for her, and we're going to breed her, you know, maybe once, maybe if I'm really feeling wild twice, probably not. Um you know, but I need titles on her first, and, you know, she's got to be perfect, and she's going to be the most amazing herding dog, and then I go out, and and it's like she's never seen sheep before, and she's a slathering wolf, and she's like, I'm eating me some sheep, and you're like, what the hell? And the important part when we are faced with these things is to remember that we don't know what's going on in their minds. We don't know if she was hungry. I don't know if she was just in a good mood or a bad mood. I don't know even what that means. Um, I don't know, you know, if she was distracted, if, I don't know, she had a really hard problem, if she was trying to solve a math problem. I don't know. Um, it's not personal. She's not trying to be bad. She's just, you know, so we kept backing up and helping her out, backing up and helping her out, backing up and helping her out, because uh, the most important thing in those circumstances is we not blame her, um, we not take it out on her. We back it up until we find success, and then we move back forward until we are back where we started. Um, just the way you would um, with a kid who's learning something, or yourself, hopefully, if you're learning something, and, and you forget um, what you're doing. You forget how to do it. You, you forget how far you've, you maybe have come. I remember when I was younger, and I, I was probably very young. I was probably like three or uh, third or fourth grade. And at the time, I was one of those... Uh, little kid who just writes and writes and writes. I have, I have reams of really badly scrawled, you know, fiction and, um, in my garage. And so I was writing and I was old enough to have a fairly decent handle on, on spelling of almost every decent, you know, normal word. Um, 
And I all of a sudden, I just remember this. I got really stuck on of. This, I, I learned this, I learned to write back in the days when you sounded out letters. I don't know if they still do that anymore. And of, if you spell it, if you sound it out, is either UV, of, UV, maybe OV. I knew there was no in it. I was freaking, I was, could not, could not remember the spelling of this damn word. I knew I was doing it wrong. I kept looking at the page and I'm like, UV, that doesn't look right. OV, that doesn't look right. And I'm just looking at it and looking at it and I'm just like, what the, I know this is wrong, but I don't know why it's wrong. Because of course I learned of, but I was new enough at it. Like I said, I, I don't know. I don't remember how old I was. I was I was younger than ten, which is when we moved out of the house that I remember being in. Um, so maybe I was, you know, seven or eight. I was at that age where you you are still learning letters or learning words. And I was I couldn't. I had to ask my parents. I'm like, how do you spell of? And they're like, O F. Like that is the most idiotic thing I've ever freaking heard. That is just stupid. But I certainly never forgot it. So we do have to remember that we don't have a perfect trajectory when we are learning, that habits are breathtakingly powerful to break, that habitual patterns, once they are established, are almost impossible to truly walk away from, that they will always, that, that we humans and dogs and, and any complex animal will always revert back to those in times of stress or if the antecedent picture matches what they're used to, remember the, the bar and the cigarettes, um, and that whenever we're dealing with a, with a seemingly simple problem that seems for, to really resist our best efforts and our trainer's best efforts to dial down and solve that problem, don't leave out the idea that maybe habit is, is playing a part here and that maybe the behavior is, is no longer associated with the underlying trigger that started the behavior and is now just what the dog does under these circumstances. Dog sees another dog, I know what I do, I act like a jackass. It's like, what, well, you're not frightened anymore. No, no, but that's what I do. That's, that's how I act. Um, and, we, and then we have to have another uh, a plan on, on how to go forward and deal with that. And usually at that point, that's where you kind of break in and you, you kind of disrupt the thought process because the fear is ideally no longer in the picture. And that's when, as your friend reaches for the cigarette, you're like, hey, didn't you quit? And just remind them. Um, you're, not, you're not punishing them. You're not flicking a rubber band at them. It, it's just a, a redirection. Well, well, didn't you do that? Didn't you quit that? Oh, you're right, I did. I don't know why I was reaching for that. Thank you. So the reason I bring all of this up, like I said, is just be aware. Um, training, we like to think, is really straightforward. And often it is until it's not. So there it is. Um, happy training. Um, I wish everybody best, uh, the best. Uh, thank you all for listening again to another week. I am trying to be good about recording once a week. I am trying to trap Maggie in a corner. I'm trying to get some other people on here, so bear with me. But I'm hoping to put out some decent content by myself, even if it's not as fun. And uh, I will see you all or hear you all or chat at you all next week. Thank you for listening. Uh, like, share, subscribe, rate. And thank you very much for listening to your dog's best life. Happy training.